Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 39. My name is Christopher Luff. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, I'm joined by Devin Ackerman, Global Service Line Leader for Digital Forensics and Incident Response at Kroll. Thanks for being on the show today, Devin. Absolutely. No, Chris, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. To kick things off, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? My full name is Devin Ackerman. I am the Global Service Line Leader for Digital Forensics and Incident Response for a company called Kroll. And ultimately, my teams globally usually are being pulled in to respond to clients when they've had a bad day, for a lack of a better term, we also call right of boom. Something bad has happened. We get pulled in for digital forensics and incident response. We're going to talk about probably a little more today. And that's what we do. I can tell more about my background, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. I asked you on the show today, so we could have a bit of a focused conversation around digital forensics and incident response or defer. Is that the correct way to say it? That's it. Defer. Digital forensics and incident response. Yep. Yeah. I'm never sure about any of the pronunciations in this industry. So to start it off, what got you interested in technology? On your CV, it looks like you initially got started building computers, running corporate email, building websites, providing hosting, normal, you know, early 2000s geek stuff. The dot-com boom. Yes. So actually, I am right in the middle of, of getting ready to release one of my first books. And I kind of go into this background. So this will be a preview for you. Uh, many actually probably don't know too much about my early, early years. But some people know about the FBI. I'll get to that in a second. But I started out, frankly, creating websites uh, right around the time frame that one of my first jobs, uh, finishing high school, I started creating websites for kind of small businesses uh, south of Atlanta in, in Georgia. And that grew into, frankly, being the IT guy for a lot of companies, a lot of small businesses, everything from small jewelry stores to, frankly, uh, car dealerships. And so I would create the website and then I would be their on-call IT guy. And I, I've always enjoyed computers. I think a lot of people of my age, you know, got into IT, got into computers at a younger age and uh, started tinkering, but I turned it into a profession. I started a business and ultimately was able to build that into a, uh, into a career. Very cool. And then in 2007, you started working for the FBI. You started as a member of the Computer Analysis Response Team, or CART, and eventually worked your way up to being a supervisory special agent over the course of nine years. What brought you to the FBI? Was this something you worked towards intentionally, or was it one of those things that just kind of landed in front of you? I was wrapping up my undergraduate degree with Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont, and one of my professors at the time over the Digital Forensic Science program recommended myself and one or two other students to the FBI's Honors Internship Program. Back when I actually was able to secure that internship, there was about 500 interns across the United States for the Honors Internship Program, but there was only eight of us that were able to be provided a paid internship at the at the regional computer forensics laboratories. That was my foot in the door. And I absolutely loved it. It was a three-month-long internship. Um, I received a security clearance for it, had a background check. But it really got me introduced into the world of true forensics outside of academia, outside of, hey, I downloaded a tool and I'm learning things myself, actually realizing how law enforcement does it for criminal standards and ultimately, you know, preparing everything with chain of custody and getting ready for court of law. It's, I was hooked at that point. Yeah, I bet. That sounds like a very exciting thing to do right out of school. 
from what is listed on your CV, it looks like you had the opportunity to do a wide range of really important work while you're there, protecting children, counterterrorism, national security, the whole gamut. Assuming you can talk about it, was there any specific time or work you did at the FBI that was particularly rewarding? Ooh, we could probably spend an entire show just on that. I, at a high level, the entire almost 10 years I was with the FBI was rewarding. And frankly, there are days when I miss aspects of it. I love what I do for Kroll, but there are days when I missed uh, being able to kind of be the first one in to, to either save a kid or to respond to a national security incident. And, and the FBI is, for any of you viewers that ever want to get into law enforcement, I can't speak as, as highly about that agency as, as frankly, uh, having been there for that amount of time. It was a great opportunity. I, I was able to uh, join teams that ultimately had large terrorism uh, takedowns. I was part of investigations that resulted in spies being arrested and ultimately uh, serving sentences. And I was involved in a countless amount of investigations in which we were, we call them violent crimes against children investigations, where ultimately children, uh, minors who can't advocate for themselves or protect themselves, uh, we were able to step in and protect and, and rescue. So uh, the FBI, from, from a wide range of investigation capabilities, and because I was assigned to a resident agency, a smaller satellite office, off the field office, I was exposed to a wide range of investigation throughout my career that were just, they were eye-opening, but also instrumental in kind of shaping my career path. Yeah, that sounds incredibly rewarding. And I can imagine that's the kind of thing that really, you must have a strong sense of the bigger mission that we're all on after doing that kind of work. Absolutely. In 2014, while you're still with the FBI, you started an organization called About Defer that looks like some kind of community resource with defer specific content. Can you tell us more about that and what drove you to make additional work for yourself? I can, and I'll include a little something humorous too that not a lot of people know. So I originally started with a spreadsheet when I was in the FBI in the CART program, the Computer Analysis Response Team program. And so within the FBI, we have working groups. And and I actually started the spreadsheet to collect links. A lot of us within the industry have done that, right? There's there's many people that create their kind of own link repository, so you can always go find something when you need it. And I had one of these. That grew, though, into a, a very large spreadsheet that ultimately I was like, I think this would be really good for a website. At the time, I was actually, this was early on, and I was uh, asked to give a talk at one of the SANS defer summits. And at during the summit, uh, someone tweeted at about DFIR, which was not my Twitter handle at the time. Uh, I actually had a totally different Twitter handle. And I saw it, and I was like, that's actually kind of perfect. And that is what ultimately led to me not only grabbing that Twitter handle before someone else did, but it really is what I then evolved and built the website, uh, the community around. And I have an active, I've active uh, 10 plus uh, individuals that are actively adding to the website, uh, regularly posting content. And we're all collaborating to kind of make sure that it is a, it is a one-stop repository for training and certification and educational resources for, frankly, the globe. Very cool. So for somebody who is maybe interested in pivoting over to defer or starting their career, uh, that would be a good resource for them to go check out. Absolutely. Everything from the educational academia side to where can you go read about current free articles to tool breakdowns and artifact breakdowns. It is the whole goal of the About DFR website is if you want to learn about the science, but you want to, but maybe you're someone who doesn't want to dive super deep, you want to be more high level. 
everything from industry reports to daily security updates, it's all there in one place. Really cool. Yeah. And I don't think we mentioned it. The domain for that is aboutdefer.com. I'll link it in the show notes as I do with all the things we talk about. So now that we have your backstory and know that you're most certainly an expert, let's talk about Defer. At the very highest level, breaking the name down, we have two distinct elements, digital forensics and then incident response. In my mind, digital forensics is the work that happens after an event or breach takes place to help quantify the damage, figure out how the bad actors got in, document everything for insurance and things like that. And then incident response is more of an active engagement where the threat actors are still in the environment. Is that accurate or am I naive in my understanding? So that's a really interesting way of describing it. But let me let me boil down, I guess, a little bit further. Digital forensics incident response, they go hand in hand because they're two essential areas of the investigative and reactive world of cybersecurity. But digital forensics is the scientific discipline that underpins investigative incident response. So incident response is a large catch-all of things we do to respond to an incident. That can include crisis communications and reputation management. It can include data recovery. It can include what most people think of as true forensics, but they can also include containment and actor ejection. So incident response goes on top of digital forensics. Digital forensics is the scientific underpinning The way we approach the analysis of artifacts, we interpret data to reach defensible conclusions and most normally to prepare for a deposition or to prepare for something in a court of law where, of course, you have to do things to a scientific standard if you are going to be admitted as an expert and not just a fact witness. So that is digital forensics. That's the way I would at least describe it. For your for your listeners, and then incident response is again that kind of broader catch-all category of responding to an incident, but using digital forensics uh, and scientific disciplines. In a forensic investigation, what are the kind of things that you look for? I'm sure it's somewhat dependent on the particular case, but in a general sense, what are some of the artifacts that can be extracted from a computer that are often useful? That is, we could probably spend a whole session just on that. So forensics at a, from an incident response perspective, and we're looking at artifacts, there's a wide gamut. And you're, you're absolutely right. It comes down to what type of, of investigation are we doing? Are we doing a business email compromise investigation where a threat actor has gotten access to an email account? Probably that's going to be mostly log analysis in the particular email tenant or, or a provider, a lot of log analysis, and then, of course, tying those artifacts together to build a timeline, not as much endpoint or traditional Windows, Linux, Mac forensics. But let's talk about a ransomware event, all right? The intrusion life cycle, where a bad actor or bad actors have intruded into a networked environment, they've moved through the environment, and they've ultimately exfiltrated or stolen something and then detonated ransomware to hold a victim for, for extortion and payment. That is where we're kind of talking about kind of really deep diving into artifacts. And high level, I'll kind of pick, give you my favorite three, I think. We love event logs. Windows event logs from a, stand, from a standpoint of the density of, of rich data they contain, which is why many threat actors ultimately will clear the event logs because they want to enact some anti-forensics and clear their tracks. The next file system data. And this actually goes a little bit more back to the the true, the raw digital forensics approach, right? Actual analysis of file system data and related metadata to dive into when did this file get written to the system? When was this file downloaded? 
uh, file system forensics are a huge aspect of incident response because it helps us tell a story. And one of the last ones I'll give you is the Windows Registry Hives. Uh, the Windows Registry Hives are databases that collect information that Windows puts into uh, these tables and keys that we then can read and parse and derive an immense wealth of information to, again, help us tell a story of what happened. I hear a lot about Velociraptor from our community, and it's actually one of the tools we have streamlined the deployment of with Lima Charlie. Are you familiar with that tool? Absolutely are. So so Velociraptor is an immensely powerful tool. It, for the listeners that may not be familiar with it, definitely check it out. I imagine you can drop a link in, into the, into the uh, thread here. But Velociraptor is fundamentally an endpoint agent that helps us collect forensic artifacts and conduct that analysis. Now, Crawl, while we have a kind of a wide variety of tools, and I'll probably say this for one of your other questions, we ultimately have a process or lifecycle around collection of evidence at scale, and we have some in-house tools we've created as well. Are there any other open source tools that you find useful for these types of investigations, tools for reassembling or file carving, things that have been deleted, things like that? Absolutely. So look, there's definitely open source tools out there from the community where Forensics has advanced so much in recent years. I, I certainly would give a shout out to uh, to Eric Zimmerman. He is not only a fellow Kroll colleague, he and I worked in the FBI together. Frankly, he's one of the ones that reached out to me when he joined Kroll and said, come on over. But Eric Zimmerman has done an immense amount of work for the community with open source. His stuff is on GitHub, ericzimmerman.github.io. But his list of tools, a lot of those, he and I collaborated in the very beginning on. He has he is quite a master in his own right, but Registry Explorer was a tool that frankly he and I were standing in a hotel lobby one night and I said it'd be great if we had a tool that did this. And two months later he had a working mocked up concept. So from an open source community standpoint, definitely check out Eric Zimmerman's GitHub. And there is an immense amount of tools that you can not only look at the code and how it's doing it, but that you can download, run and actively use defensively on investigations right now. Very cool. Another thing I hear a lot about when people talk about defer is the chain of custody. Can you briefly explain that concept to us and, and why it's important? So that that goes right back to what I mentioned earlier for your for your listeners is around digital forensic science. From a scientific discipline standpoint, chain of custody and being and preparing and looking ahead of where might I take this evidence later. The chain of custody allows us to say at this point in time, this person touched it. We verified the evidence as a best evidence integrity uh, checked co uh, copy. And then we move that from person to person to person. So chain of custody is something that we do by default at Kroll and many IR vendors do. But, you know, many of us at Kroll from a cyber perspective, investigative perspective, are former law enforcement. And in law enforcement, when you execute a search warrant or you get a return from a subpoena, the first thing you do is start a chain of custody because you never want someone to then be able to question later that the evidence was tampered with, altered, obliterated. No, I have a chain of custody that shows this person touched it, this person touched it, and it was returned back to evidence control. And we do the same thing from an incident response perspective when we take data in also from a standpoint of clients, we took this data and we can now attest to it or we can opine on it because our processes and tools have not changed the efficacy of the data. Right. So if there's any gap in that chain in like a legal setting, that would invalidate the evidence, I'm assuming. 
it certainly could call it into question and an and a inexperienced examiner would then be hard pressed to defend the validity of the evidence if they couldn't properly explain the chain from genesis to end yes okay so talking a little bit now about the incident response part of it what does it normally look like when an ir kicks off is it usually a big event like ransomware or more low-key like someone realizes that someone is in their network and don't know how to get them out great question so we have had both scenarios and many more we can talk about but most of the time Crawl is being brought in from an expert standpoint because we have, have a client that has a right of boom. And so when we talk about kind of the life cycle of consulting, you have left of boom where you are proactively helping a client. Maybe doing a tabletop exercise, planning for an event that you hope never happens, doing a proactive security assessment or a risk assessment or a pen test to say, hey, let's audit controls. Let's make sure you're okay. If you don't have a bad day. And there's a line in the sand that happens, right? We call it the boom moment. The bad thing happens. It could be the insider threat took the data. It could be the ransomware. It could be the network intrusion. A bad thing happened. That's boom. And historically, incident response teams like mine get brought in right of boom. The client realizes something bad has happened. How do we now react to it? And that is at its core incident response. So we get brought in sometimes by by experienced A teams with with large clients uh, that have sophisticated, you know, forensicators internal. Like we know something is bad, we need uh, additional expertise, and so we sometimes do get brought in when they see anomalies in the network before ransomware. Percentage is statistically because of how, frankly, good a lot of the organized crime groups are from a red team standpoint, a malicious red team standpoint. Most organized crime groups nowadays move very quickly, and so they, from the point in time they get in. To the point in time they take data, the point in time they detonate or encrypt data uh, or take the data and then use it for extortion is usually a very compressed time frame. The last thing I'll tell you is, you know, years ago and probably going back almost 10 to 15 years, the average life cycle for an advanced persistent threat actor, a nation state hacker, was months. They would dwell. Their focus was different. It was intrude into a network, hide and collect data slowly over time. Organized crime groups are the absolute opposite of that spectrum, though. It's how quickly we smash and grab, how quickly we move on to the next target, because they're financially motivated. And so those life cycles are very quick. And by the time most corporate or small business IT teams realize something's wrong, it's already wrong. So when you get the call, and hopefully it's not at 3 a.m., what are your first objectives? Are they different based on the information you get during the initial briefing? Or is there a pretty standard set of actions you take when you come into a new organization in crisis? I would say there's a fairly standard playbook that we roll out that starts with containment and do no harm to the environment to the best of our ability. Or we're going to leverage some type of endpoint detection response technology. We're going to leverage Kroll's responder managed services perspective. We're going to be able to monitor the environment, help bring containment to active intrusion, and then move to ejection of the threat actor, and then move to making that victim whole again. So you have to contain, you have to eject, and then you can move forward rapidly with the investigation and restoring operations. And I would say that, you know, while every client is important, every client we want to move quickly, you can imagine that there is a different degree of how we might approach, say, a healthcare provider or a hospital 
who is giving and providing critical care and potentially them turning away 911 calls or ambulances and is a matter of life and death versus maybe a bakery or some other type of industry vertical where you have a little more time and you can work with that victim to maybe do things at a little bit of a different cadence or speed. But to bring it back to your original question, containment, actor ejection, preservation, do no harm, and then ultimately get uh, the point to uh, the client to a point where they, you've minimized the business interruption, made them whole again, and then tell them the story. Why did this happen? How did it happen? How long has it been happening? And what's the path forward to, for them to go uh, to increase security going forward? Yeah, okay. That kind of leads to my next question, which was, you know, once you have the environment secured, assess the damage, the business is back up and running, uh, assuming it was down, what is next? What's the work or processes that need to take place after a major event like this takes place? Well, that's a great question. I think succinctly, Kroll looks at every uh, every time the incident response teams are brought in, we look at it as an opportunity to help a client and then establish that relationship with them, right? And so ultimately, for every client that wants to continue working and have a relationship with a consultancy like Kroll, our whole goal is how do we make this never to the best of our ability, ever happen again, right? Uh, clients don't want to have a major multi-million dollar uh, bad day, right? Some clients are mo- losing millions of dollars a day, tens of millions a day, just in the business interruption alone, let alone the cost of the investigation and making them whole and maybe making a payment. So how do we help mature the security profile, uh, the risk profile of an organization and bring our expertise to the table to raise the defenses of that organization, raise the defenses of the enterprise and make them a harder target. And then ultimately get to the real point, which is you're never going to stop all threat actors. You're never, ever going to be able to patch every single vulnerability out there, especially with zero days. So how do we then mature an organization and get them to a point in time where if when the bad day does still happen, because it inevitably will, how do we catch it? Before that intrusion life cycle takes a whole life of its own and you have another bad, bad day. How do we catch and stop it quickly in the beginning, whatever the intrusion uh, entry vector was? Outside of having good security practices, 2FA on everything, no unnecessary access, stuff like that. Are there things that organizations can do to prepare for a breach that can help the IR team be more effective or limit damage and downtime? Yes, you hit MFA, you hit multi-factor authentication and two-factor authentication are a huge uh, step in the right direction for making sure that using the passwords are not the weakness, right? The the weakest element in any security is always going to be the human element, right? Uh, We are trusting humans and we can put the best technology controls in place. You still likely have someone behind the keyboard. But let's take it a step further. There are... I think managed detection response, right? Not just implementing a piece of software and letting it run. That's what we did 15 years ago with antivirus, right? And then antivirus kind of uh, hit an end of a shelf life. I'm talking about managed detection response from a vendor like Kroll, uh, the shameless self-plug, but a vendor that is going to help monitor an environment and then say, of everything we're seeing on the instant response side from teams like me, how are we constantly infusing that first into the way we protect environments. You're, you can protect everything you want at the outer edge of, a, of an enterprise, of a business. At some point, 
something's going to get through it, right? Ultimately, let's just use the example of a, of a quick email. Every user is on email. It's how we do business in this day and age. You and I coordinated via email, right? And so ultimately, as soon as I get an email to an end user with some of a malicious attachment, I circumvent all of that perimeter security and arguably probably 60 to 70% of the time we see it avoiding antivirus on the endpoint. So if I can get straight inside the proverbial castle with an arrow with the malware, I'm already in. So managed detection response is one of the best, I think, frankly, from an investment standpoint, any company can make because you have to prepare for the what if day and you have to be able to say, how do I catch that before it becomes an entire intrusion life cycle? Yeah. And I think he's touched on something really important there too, is that like detection logic constantly needs to be tuned. You know, it's not a thing that you install once and then it just runs. You need to have teams working on that and keeping up with the different vectors and actions that threat actors are taking. Yes. And I'll add one more thing. I think that's one of the things we do well, but we also do differently. I think it's a differentiator for Kroll Cyber in the industry of vendors and in the industry of services. You know, I was just at RSA with our team and, you know, everyone offers a thing and everyone is good at a thing. But one of the, uh, the, the services that I think we excel in is doing instant response first, which feeds all of the other aspects that we do in the service we provide, like managed detection response. But we're not, we're not just an MDR vendor that can just monitor your endpoints. We're an instant response vendor that also provides managed detection response because we're constantly feeding or learning within that ecosystem to always stay ahead. So, yeah, we're getting close to time here. Do you have any advice for our listeners that may be thinking of making a move into the deeper space, things you wished you knew starting out, or things you look for as someone who hires people in this space? Oh, that's a great question. So, if I could go back and I could tell 20-year-old uh, me what to expect for the next 20 years, I think I would, I think I would remind myself two things, that whenever you have an opportunity to work with someone who has been in this industry for a while, listen, make the time to learn from their mistakes, but equally their experiences. I think many young individuals, myself included, when I first got into this was, I know technology, I know cyber, I got a fancy degree, therefore I know what I'm doing. What we do in instant response is ultimately a combination of listening building upon our experiences, and then ultimately always being willing to learn. Every new investigation, we learn something new. So always remember, and I tell 20-year-old me, be humble and approach every investigation with eyes wide open. That's great advice. Um, this is the last question I have, and one I ask of everybody on the show, your answer can be as wide or narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? Oh, mercy. Well, if you look at my Twitter feed, it all has to do with AI. But joking aside, I think that the last five to 10 years of incident response and forensics has been amazing to watch things evolve. I think we will see in the next several years, we're going to see tools become more automated. I think we're also going to see uh, more commoditization in incident response. But with all of that, and going back to the digital forensic science underpinning what we do, no tool will ever fully replace the person, but I think many vendors are going to try. And I think ultimately, even with the advance of AI, 
We're going to have awesome things get produced and sold and marketed. The examiner who has experience to tell you a story and base that upon the evidence they're seeing and build that timeline, I think for many years to come will still be the reigning champ. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Devin. This was a really great conversation, and uh, I hope we get to connect again in the future. Looking forward to it, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Bye. And that concludes episode 39 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.